This week, a lecture about culture during the Great Depression era. Professor Carl Abrams of Bob Jones University describes the changes to family life, the role of religion, and the rise of Hollywood films. Think about the psychological pain, especially if you're a father and a husband and you're one of the 25 or 33 percent that does not have a job. This lecture also examines the creation and legacy of New Deal programs such as the Civilian Conservation Corps and Social Security. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, we have already uh, talked about big events in our survey of American history, and obviously big events are very important Uh, We have started on one in our last class period that we met, uh, I think, last Friday. We dealt with the New Deal, and we have talked about the economic and the political aspects of the Great Depression. But what I want to do today is to show that the Great Depression is a big event and has influences and consequences that go beyond Uh, just politics and go beyond just the stock market crash and the economic woes. And I'm going to try to spend our time uh, divided evenly among these three aspects of American culture in the 1930s. Uh, How does it affect the family? And again, probably you do and even I do. Sometimes we just think, oh, the family is just static throughout history. It never changes. But if you stop and think about it, even in American history, the nature of the family uh, is going to change. And it's going to change uh, rather dramatically in the 1930s. Uh, The role that religion plays in American history uh, is going to vary from decade to decade, from different eras to different eras. And There is a surprising uh, development in religion during the 1930s, which some would relate to uh, the Great Depression. Also in American history, and we have touched on this in different chapters, and we'll continue to look at it as we get into World War II and the 1950s, uh, film is a good way to Uh, have a window onto the past and if you look at film movies in the 1930s there is a remarkable development in the film industry that I think uh, is worth noting and taking a few moments to study Uh, it tells us a great deal about the influence of Hollywood but it also tells us a great deal about the Great Depression, because no matter how bad things got in the Great Depression, you could escape uh, and go and see uh, a movie. So these are the things that we are going to uh, to look at. Uh, anybody recognize the picture here? Uh, we're going to get to this film eventually later. I thought this is a pretty good symbol for what we're talking about. Uh, here is Dorothy in a f- family farm in Kansas. And her problem doesn't seem that dramatic or earth-shadowing. I think, what was it, Uh, her neighbor lady was threatening her dog. And I like the line at the beginning where Dorothy says she just wants to get away from trouble. And so basically that becomes, I think, a, a good way of understanding people in the 1930s. Obviously, they have bigger trouble than keeping their dog safe, but... Uh, she discovers that in trying to get away from trouble, sometimes it's going to end up uh, being in more trouble. Uh, we have looked at some of these. If you remember when we talked about the New Deal and the Depression from the economic and the political angle, so a little bit of this is in review uh, is a review. 
But think about it in terms of how it affects families. Uh, that's going to be the angle that I'm, I'm going to stress here <clears throat> for a few minutes. Uh, about 80% of the banks were closed on the eve of Franklin Roosevelt's inauguration in early 1933. Again, that's very hard to imagine today. Uh, the national unemployment rate, about 25%. Uh, we're going to see in a moment. If you lived in cities, the unemployment rate is probably going to be higher, maybe as high as a third, maybe 33, 34% unemployment. And what is it today, just by way of contrast? I think I heard the other day, a couple of days ago, unemployment dipped below 5%. So if you're part of that below 5%, obviously that's an important problem for you, but most Americans don't really worry about this. But imagine uh, with that higher rate in the 1930s, obviously a problem. Another way of looking at that same statistic, it's not just about individuals uh, who have no income, it's basically going to be about families that have no income. Uh, and the way you need to uh, think about that is uh, the key at the time is adult male heads of households because uh, middle class married women in America do not yet work outside the home. It was simply, well, not economically necessary. Uh, it was not socially acceptable. And I think in your reading for Friday, when you look at World War II, uh, you're going to discover with the stereotype of Rosie the Riveter, uh, that is going to dramatically change, where you get middle-class married women. Uh, poor women have been working all along. That's a given. But we're talking about married middle-class women. Uh, during World War II and afterwards are going to be working outside the home. So when you look at those statistics, you're basically talking about households with only one income, and that income is missing. Uh, you typically don't even have teenagers working, uh, earning money, unless maybe they have a paper route or something. So when you think about those figures and you think about it in terms of families, uh, it is obviously a big problem. Uh, the median family income in the mid-1930s uh, was about $22 a week. And basically, they're the lucky ones uh, because they do have an income as a family. Another way of looking at uh, those statistics and thinking about them, and some of this I think is still true, it's not just a matter of the money, but your job is a critical part of your identity, the way you look at yourself, the way you give value to who you are as a person is often determined by your employment. And so think about the psychological pain, especially if you're a father and a husband and you're one of the 25 or 33 percent that does not have a job. And at the moment in the early 1930s, there's no unemployment insurance and there's no welfare as we know it today. So when you're out of work, uh, the circumstances are pretty dire for you when you think about all of those different angles. Uh, another complication for the family, given those statistics, um, people in the 1930s and right on through World War II are marrying at an older age. And the reason they would do that, well, if you don't have a job and you basically have aspirations for maybe graduating from college and you have those priorities that have not been achieved, uh, what's going to get postponed probably? Marriage is going to be postponed until you can get a job 
or until you can finish school. In fact, I think if you look at, if you're, uh, who would they be, great-grandparents, if you can figure out if they were married in the 1930s and then try to figure out their age, uh, the man may be closer to 30 and the woman may be closer to 25. And that's pretty old, typically, for Americans getting married before the Great Depression. So even uh, starting families is going to be a problem because of uh, those statistics. Uh, We're gonna stick with this picture for a bit here and look at, and we mentioned some of these when we talked about the New Deal the other day, but again, I want to look at it in terms of a family. How does that affect the family? Uh, This is a Pennsylvania farm family in the 1930s, and you might be thinking uh, they don't look too distressed or too poor. Uh, They're dressed up because they just came home from church on Sunday. And just interesting to me, I noted uh, the farm mother-wife does not have a hat on. Uh, Typically in that time period, uh, you see women, middle-class women and above, uh, wearing a hat indoors, outdoors. That's going to be typical right on through the 1950s. And... The farmer husband does have a hat, and he's following the the, the pattern of the day. Uh, anybody know who got men away from wearing hats because he basically didn't wear one when he ran for president? And during the inauguration festivities, John Kennedy. So in the 1960s, we basically uh, get over... Uh, men and women wearing hats uh, indoors and outdoors. Uh, Let's look at how some of these agencies might affect some of these uh, people in the the families. Well, first of all, they are not the main targets for uh, these agencies. The main targets uh, for the WPA, uh, remember the Works Progress Administration, where the government basically creates jobs, Uh, They are targeting more people in the cities because it's in the cities where you have the higher rate of unemployment. But it is theoretically possible that the WPA could be an option for the husband, the father, in terms of a government job, temporary job, uh, maybe working on a construction project and getting paid for that. And then, of course, the government expects them to spend the money. And the idea, all of that is going to do what? It's going to stimulate uh, the economy. Uh, The housewife mother also may have been eligible for uh, work relief, to use the language of the day. Uh, And, of course, this sounds very sexist today, but there were WPA sewing rooms where you would have the federal government recruiting women uh, in a building, maybe an abandoned factory building, they would go and I guess in coordination with textile companies, they would have sewing rooms or she might have a WPA job uh, working in a public library. Uh, The targets for The children are going to be the NYA and the CCC, uh, the National Youth Administration, and the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, The NYA is basically an agency that gives uh, what we would call today white-collar clerical jobs to both male and female young people. It was open to both genders. And they might do things like work in a public school library after school. And they would be paid by the NYA, the federal government. And so the young lady in the family uh, possibly would be eligible for 
that kind of opportunity. Uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps was, uh, I think, the most popular, most popular New Deal agencies among families, especially among parents. Uh, young adult men <clears throat> were basically sent uh, by the federal government to work in national parks. They might do conservation projects or build picnic shelters, and they would actually live in those camps in the forest. Uh, they would get paid about $30 a month, and the reason the parents liked that, 25 of that $30 is going to be sent home to the parents. So you could see why the parents would be uh, happy with the CCC. But I think our young fellows here are probably a little young for the CCC, but who knows, they may have joined it in the late 30s or early 40s. Uh, it's going to hang around in existence uh, really right on up until about World War II. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So uh, you have... Uh, those opportunities for those farm families. Uh, the other thing, the most obvious one, uh, the AAA Agricultural Adjustment Administration. Uh, this family, and maybe one of the reasons they look a little more prosperous than they otherwise would look, uh, maybe they are participating in the AAA. Uh, remember, the government basically paid farmers to grow less uh, commodities or produce less milk, and they rewarded them with subsidies if they did that. So cutting production, and you get paid a subsidy, and the prices of those commodities, since there's going to be less of it, the prices are going to go up. So for a couple of years, uh, this works pretty well. And income for farmers in 1934, 1935, uh, income is actually up. And I think I mentioned the political problem Roosevelt had with this in 1935. Remember the Supreme Court? declared it unconstitutional, so they had to reconfigure it and make it a conservation program uh, to accomplish uh, the same thing. Uh, for African-American families, uh, ironically, it's going to make life worse for many of them because in the South, uh, we studied about agriculture in the South in the late 19th century, and it's still true in the early 20th century, uh, large numbers of African-American men after slavery became sharecroppers, and so they worked for landowners who were growing cotton. Uh, what's going to happen to sharecroppers if you cut back your production of cotton, say, by 25%? You're going to need fewer sharecroppers. So many African-American families, unlike this white family, many African-American families are going to be driven off the land. And then what do you do? Uh, what you do basically is you move to the city. And that's not good because in the cities you have unemployment figures, remember, as high as what? About 33%. So the AAA is not going to work uh, well for everybody, for uh, all time. <clears throat> now let's look at what I would argue is probably the biggest legacy of the New Deal, 
and that is Social Security. And I want us to think about it in terms of how it is going to affect the family because it dramatically does affect the family in the 1930s and still affects the family today. Probably most of us, and even myself, when we think of Social Security, we think of the main feature of it, which is an old age pension fund, and you probably think of it mostly when you look at your paycheck and see the big chunk that is taken out for that purpose. But Social Security, uh, if you look at the legislative history of Social Security, it is one of the most complex pieces of legislation uh, maybe not quite as complicated as Obamacare, but it's in that same ballpark in terms of all the different contingencies and different aspects that are included. Uh, we're just going to look at some of the main features uh, of Social Security. So you have the old age pension fund. Uh, then you have unemployment insurance. And again, thinking about the high rate of unemployment, that makes sense. But look at the next two. Uh, these are probably, unless you benefit from these directly, most people don't even think about them, don't even know about them. Old age assistance, OAA, old age assistance, and aid to dependent children, aid to dependent children. Uh, Social Security is passed in 1935. The Social Security Act passed in 1935. Uh, what if you are 65 or 70 years old when the legislation is passed? You obviously are too old probably or maybe even unable to work. So you can't contribute you can't get into the system, but you still need help. That's the purpose for the OAA, people who get sort of caught in between when the uh, Social Security program is going to start. Uh, the law was passed in 1935. Uh, deductions from paychecks doesn't really start until 1937. And benefits, uh, they thought originally the benefits wouldn't start until 1942. They later changed that and up it to 1940. So my point is you're going to have some needy people before they can get real money from Social Security. And how do you do, how do, you do that? You do it with the old age assistance. Uh, what do you do with households where there is no breadwinner? There is no father, husband, a person who can get into Social Security by working and contributing. What do you do with a mother and two children in 1935 and Social Security? If you look at it in terms of old age pension fund and unemployment insurance is not going to be helpful for them at all. So aid to dependent children basically is a grant of money to widows and orphans. It also includes uh, people that we today, we would use the word disabilities, but in the language of the 1930s, uh, people who were blind, Crippled, which is interesting because of the exercise you did on Wednesday with Roosevelt, or on Monday, excuse me, for Roosevelt, uh, a victim of polio, paralyzed, so crippled, and people who had other illnesses, sicknesses, uh, what happens to them? Uh, they can't work and participate in Social Security, so you have basically a grant of money uh, for them. Uh, the other thing that you need to realize about Social Security is, uh, at first, it's only going to cover about half of the workers. It is going to exclude, for example, 
unskilled workers and self-employed. So in the coming decades, I think by the 1950s, they get around to covering most people in the workforce. So only about half the workers and the original uh, deduction is going to be, I think, a whopping 1% of your income. So Social Security sounds radical and for American politics in the in the time period it is by today's standards though and by European standards it's uh, quite uh, quite modest Uh, Frances Perkins Secretary of Labor and notice what she is wearing she's following the style of the day Uh, anybody know the superlative that she gets in American history she is the first woman to serve in the cabinet and she's going to be the secretary of labor for the entire roosevelt presidency 1933 to 1945 and uh, there is basically the idea uh, that among historians and people at the time that she gets the lion's share of the credit for Social Security. And let me read a quote from her. The real roots of the Social Security Act were in the Great Depression of 1929. Nothing else would have bumped the American people into a Social Security system except something so shocking, so terrifying as that depression. So again, if Social Security is a rather dramatic step in the 1930s. The reason for it is uh, when you have a crisis, an economic crisis on the scale that we do in the 1930s, then you would expect a remedy that would be equal to to the crisis. Uh, Important to the development of Social Security are going to be some amendments uh, that are going to be added in 1939. And basically what happens here, they are going to expand the dependent and survivor benefits. Uh, The ADC ones we talked about a moment ago, a lot of those are going to uh, be created. They're going to create more categories and more benefits and some would say in the history of Social Security, this is one of the most uh, important one, most important development for families. Uh, let me give you some statistics here to show the, uh, the scale of this. According to the Social Security Administration, since 1940, and 1940 ends up being the first year that people are getting funds, The Social Security program has awarded benefits to more than 41 million children. So we think of Social Security, we think of old people, but 41 million children, approximately half of whom have received benefits as a result of a parent's death, approximately 25 million widows or widowers, have been awarded benefits. And if you think about your family or your extended family, uh, there may be people in your family who have, under certain circumstances, benefited from this. Uh, To finish up here on Social Security, uh, what's uh, the significance of it? Uh, It's going to change the American family. Let's look at how it's going to do that. Uh, The family is going to change from the elderly living with adult children. And I guess if this were sociology, we would call that a what? An extended family where you have the elderly parents living with their adult children. Or... What's also going to be pretty dire, you have uh, the elderly living in, depends on what part of the country you come from, where I came from in the rural south. Uh, We called it a county home. 
In some places, it's known as the poorhouse. In some places, probably up north, it may be known as the almshouse. But it's basically for the elderly who are destitute. And they have no other support, so they end up in these county homes. That basically is going to be eventually eliminated thanks to Social Security. So you're going to get the elderly out of the home uh, living with their adult children, and you're going to get the elderly destitute out of the almshouses because now they can have some sort of uh, independent existence because of the benefits from Social Security. Also, uh, Social Security is going to help institutionalize retirement in America. When you have the elderly parents living alone and they get income from Social Security, uh, retirement becomes a formal system, a normal system in American culture. And that basically is new, and the main reason for it is Social Security. Now, again, this doesn't happen immediately in 1935. It's going to take a few decades because, as I said earlier, only about half of the workers are covered. So you have to get more people involved in the system, and eventually uh, that is what uh, is going to happen. So you have independence for the elderly. And some people would say they would not probably articulate this. You probably wouldn't want to say this directly to your parents, but one historian who studied Social Security came up with the conclusion that there was a kind of implicit generational bargain. Adult children are willing to pay the payroll taxes as a way to care for their parents rather than the alternative, which would be having their parents living in their household. So Social Security becomes a means of independence, not only for their elderly parents, but it also means independence for the adult children as well. So that's, that's a pretty big change for uh, the family. Uh, now let's look at uh, the role of religion. Uh, if you look at American history, uh, there are times uh, in which historians will argue that external events affect religion. Uh, just one example would be the Great Awakening. They, they cite certain things that are happening in the secular world and it contributes to a revival. Uh, here we have one example, people of faith. How does it affect African Americans? Uh, African Americans are in the midst of what is known as the Great Migration. They are moving from the south to the north, to the industrial urban Midwest, the West Coast. And that migration is going to slow down during the 1930s for obvious reasons, nothing else. Uh, jobs are not as plentiful in the places that they're going to. And so you have uh, not great significant changes for them in religion except those that are living in northern urban areas, uh, they are going to create some churches that are going to basically take over old stores, and so you have independent storefront churches become popular in African-American communities in the 1930s. Uh, I think about the only significant new religious group uh, starts uh, in Detroit in 1930, the Nation of Islam. Uh, Elijah Muhammad uh, founds the Nation of Islam, or or the black Muslims, as they're known as well. Uh, but other than that, uh, 
life pretty much goes on. Uh, African Americans, as was true since slavery, uh, basically worship alone, uh, their self-segregation uh, on Sunday morning in churches. Uh, this may be a bit of a surprise to you as you think about uh, religion in America in the 1930s. Uh, the major Protestant denominations are going to decline in the 1930s. Anybody know what gorgeous church we're looking at here? This is uh, St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. So denominations like the Episcopal Church, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, the mainline, or some would say establishment churches, if you look at any major category, uh, attendance, uh, income, uh, what they're giving, uh, in virtually every category, uh, they are going uh, down uh, during the 1930s. If you lived in the 1930s, uh, I don't think uh, Billy Graham is not as visible publicly as he used to be. He's very uh, elderly and not well. But in the 1930s, probably the most visible uh, minister uh, in the media would be Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he is a good example of a liberal Protestant. And what makes somebody a liberal Protestant? Uh, they're not all the same, but for this man probably, uh, the idea that he would deny uh, many of the supernatural aspects of Christianity, such as the bodily resurrection of Christ, uh, he is the pastor at Riverside Church in Manhattan, in New York City. And what he is focusing on and what his church is focusing on in the 1930s, you could predict, uh, that is caring for people in economic need. So more of an outgrowth of what is known as the social gospel instead of a, an emphasis on the individual being converted, uh, meeting needs of society. So uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, he was on the radio in the 1930s, uh, a nationally broadcast radio program known as National Vespers, and he wrote about 40 books uh, which has created a, a little bit of confusion. You would think that if your churches, if the uh, liberal Protestant churches are declining in attendance and giving, that their influence would be declining. But that's really not true. And it's not true because men like Fosdick and some others are writing books they are publishing magazines and they're writing articles in magazines. Uh, they're being interviewed by the media, like Fosdick, they're on the radio. So even though their numbers are down, their influence uh, generally is still uh, pretty strong. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr is probably the most famous American theologian I would say after Jonathan Edwards. And Reinhold Niebuhr is very prominent in the 1930s. Uh, this is his book uh, published in 1932, Very Influential, Moral Man and Immoral Society. He is technically a liberal Protestant but he's a little more realistic than some of the others. Uh, he's more concerned about, uh, for example, before he went to Union Theological Seminary as a professor, he was a pastor in Detroit, and he was willing to work with uh, blue-collar workers, union members, 
uh, and helping them gain a voice in society. So he's championing the working class. And he's also a bit more realistic in some of his theological discussions. He will talk about uh, and celebrate uh, the person of Christ. Uh, He talks about evil in the 1930s, and there's a lot of evil. If you think about what's going on in Europe, uh, many liberal Protestants didn't really want to deal with it, but Reinhold Niebuhr is willing to attack some of the fascists and Nazis in Europe and basically call it evil. So he's a a bit tougher than some of the others. Uh, What's going on among evangelicals? Uh, Among evangelicals, uh, they are increasing in influence in the 1930s. If you think about conservative Protestant denominations and you look at their numbers in the 1930s, they are increasing. Uh, And that's churches, denominations, uh, their colleges, uh, their mission boards. So evangelicals in the 1930s actually are doing better statistically than the liberal Protestants. But before we get too smug, if you have studied statistics about evangelicals in the last seven or eight years, anybody know what the pattern is? Uh, We're basically going down in terms of numbers, in terms of giving. But in the 1930s, and here's one of the reasons uh, Charles Fuller is an evangelist on the radio. Uh, He is also a pastor in Orange County, California. Uh, Anybody ever wondered how Ronald Reagan got elected governor of California? When you think about it today, there's sort of a disconnect. Well, he and people like him uh, are moving to Southern California. There is a migration of Southern evangelicals into Southern California. And so preachers, pastors like Fuller uh, are very popular and they build churches, they build colleges, and they become influential. So by the 1960s, you could have someone like Ronald Reagan being elected governor of California. Uh, Here is the most popular Catholic figure probably of the 1930s, Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, He also is a radio preacher, and he basically has a mixed message. Uh, He's very liberal in terms of social justice and meeting the needs of people, uh, but he also has a kind of crazy foreign policy ideas. Uh, He is, by the early 1940s, Uh, sympathetic to the Nazis and the fascists, and that's going to get him in trouble with the federal government. Uh, It also gets him in trouble with the Catholic Church, and his bishop basically tells him to be quiet, and he obeys and goes off the air. But he was very, very popular in the 1930s. Uh, Now, quickly, in closing, uh, for 25 cents... Typically, you could go to a movie in the 1930s and you could indulge in what historians call heightened escapism. And let's look very briefly at some of the movies that I think uh, resonate with the 30s. And you have to remember, uh, I would argue that movies have power and you can use them as historical evidence. They're not perfect. Uh, Books are not perfect always either. Uh, Movies can do what? They can reflect the time period, and they can also influence the time period. So with that in mind, uh, let's look at some of these. Uh, The one on the right is probably more famous. Uh, The film comes out in 1940. I think the novel, John Steinbeck's novel, came out the year before, 1939. 
but they are, I believe, in Oklahoma, and they have trouble, the drought, uh, the farm is foreclosed, and they head for California, and they thought things would get better, but actually they get worse. So you have a tale of tragedy during the Great Depression. Uh, this one on the left is less well-known. This dates back to, the, to 1934. And don't be confused by the title. This is actually a very liberal, uh, radical application, one critic has said, of the social gospel. Uh, it's about a couple living in the city. They can't make ends meet. And so they go and live on a farm that's been foreclosed. And they get other people who pass by who don't have jobs and they try to make a triumph out of uh, this foreclosed farm. Uh, It's basically, uh, in some ways, an attack on capitalism. Uh, King Vidor, who was the director, had a lot of trouble getting the money to make it. Uh, But I think last year it was put on the Library of Congress Film Registry, which means it is a film that has cultural significance and worthy of preservation. So it's one, again, a radical version of how people struggle during the Great Depression. Uh, This is one of my favorites. This is uh, Claudette Colbert, a widow. And her housekeeper is also a widow, and they each have a daughter. Uh, They start a pancake business. Uh, There is obviously the racial stereotyping there. But it also deals with the question of racial passing, which is not something people talked about in the 1930s, and we're just beginning to talk about it today. But the housekeeper's daughter is very light-skinned, and she wants to pass as a white person in public school, and that leads to, as you can imagine, all kinds of trauma. But they become very wealthy from the pancake business, so it's a a nice parable of the the 1930s, I think, and the Great Depression. A little more familiar. I think a lot of people think about Gone with the Wind, and it's only about the 19th century South, but in many ways, it's also about the 1930s and its popularity. This is a crowd, I believe, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they don't look very poor the way they're dressed, and they are waiting patiently to get in to see Gone with the Wind. So there's something about Scarlett O'Hara's struggling uh, that does resonate with the 1930s. And we're basically left here with uh, where we began, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, Again, you think about the 1930s. This actually, uh, in fact, we had an exercise dealing with this early in the semester. Uh, The novel actually is about the economic woes of the 1890s. The film basically becomes a story that resonates with the economic woes of the 1930s. And so if you can imagine uh, being in the audience uh, and thinking about uh, it and how it's going to, to fit, I think to me the big lesson comes at the end when Dorothy discovers what? after all that travel and trying to get help and solving all of her troubles, she finally comes to the conclusion of what's the line at the end? There's no no place like home, which to some people in the 1930s may have meant, well, maybe the Great Depression was not as uh, bad as it seemed after all. Any questions? Uh, Obviously, if you need to leave, please feel free. Uh, You may want to use the the back door there. Uh, If anybody has any questions, I'll be happy to entertain them. I actually have some information about some other movies that came out in the 1930s and 1939. 
almost all of them considered uh, classics. Anybody, any questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, here. The AAA, the Agricultural Administration, mm-hmm. um, who do you think it helped out more, the individual families or the nation as a whole? Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. The one from 1933 to 1935 worked well for the families and it worked well for farmers. Uh, it worked well for the farmers in the South, especially. So as they are helped, that's going to help the national picture. So from the one, the one from 32 to 35 directly helped the family get more income because they were directly being given Yeah, They got money. income from two sources. They would get a bigger, higher price for their cotton at the market. Right. And they would get a subsidy check from the government. For which lessening their Just as a premium okay. to encourage them. Uh, Roosevelt figured you're asking farmers to do something that is sort of counterintuitive to grow less and that's going to help you make more money so they figured and I think figured correctly the only way you're going to get farmers to cooperate is to pay them and so farmers faced with this proposition okay I may look stupid but I'm not stupid you're going to pay me to work less basically right so and they, and they would have a referenda on this with the farmers the cotton farmers got to vote on it and typically they vote for it overwhelmingly right and it does work what happens is after the supreme court declares it unconstitutional uh, they have to rig it and make it sound like conservation you're not planting as much money, as much uh, crops to get more money. You're doing it for conservation. When so was it was it called ruled? soil conservation. Right. When was it ruled unconstitutional? Was it after? 35. No, after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Any questions? Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out our latest podcast, First Ladies, in their own words. Using material from C-SPAN's award-winning biography series, First Ladies, and source material from C-SPAN's video library, you'll listen to the first spouses addressing issues important to them and the country. The program includes eight First Ladies, from Lady Bird Johnson to Melania Trump. Find First Ladies, in their own words, wherever you get your podcasts.